All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day. So Valentine's Day, I have, um, if you uh, need some help on Valentine's Day, maybe you're looking for ways like, how can I, what are some ways that I can express my love to my loved one? I just have some some really high-quality sentences that will help you, okay? If you're looking for, looking for the words to say so that you can, here's one for you. Um, do you have a GPS? Because I am lost in your eyes. Huh? No? Okay. Keep going. We'll try again. Are you religious? Because you're the answer to my prayers. Come on. You guys need to get your life journals out and take notes up here, students. Come on. No? All right. One more for you. Hey, do you know CPR? Because you take my breath away. Huh, Sarah? She said no. (laughs) She said no, try again. (laughs) Clean the house. That's how you can say you love me. Okay, I got it. (laughs) Which is what I did yesterday, by the way. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Well, you know, it was, never mind. I mean... (laughs) It was my pleasure. So, uh, happy Valentine's Day to all of you. It's great to be with you. I better pray, right? We better get going. God, we thank you so much for this time, and I, I thank you uh, for your great love for us. And I thank you, Lord, that even a day when we can be together as a church family and out here in great weather, uh, we thank you for all your blessings. We pray now that your my words would be yours, that you would speak to each one of us and transform us by your spirit, God. We invite you now to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. How many of you like a good movie or a good story? No one. Okay, good. That's great. Well, I do. Uh, and, and so, and, and I've shared before, sometimes what makes a good story, I don't, I don't like everything that makes a good story. I, I, I shared with you a few weeks ago, I think, about I don't like that all good stories have to have that crisis moment. You know, when you think, oh, nothing's going to go well, what's going on here, uh, y- you know, that there's, there's no hope, the comet's going to hit the earth, all, you know, that, that moment where you think, like, that, that crisis point that every story needs, I don't like that. I like the stories just to be like, everything was happy, everything was good, the hero was there the whole time, and life keeps going on. It's awesome. I, I have no problem with that. I don't care if that's boring. It's good for me. But I also know that every good story, when you have that crisis moment, what comes next? At just the right time, the hero shows up. At just the right time, the the comet that was going to hit the earth burns up in the atmosphere. Or just the right time, Captain Marvel shows up, even though we had no idea that she was even around the last 30 years, and saves the universe. You know, at at just the right time, in a story like that, we see that something happens. The hero changes the course. You know, when I think about some of the main questions people have about God is they relate to waiting for God to show up at just the right time. Some of the main prayers or questions people have is things like this. God, how much longer? How long am I going to have to endure this? How long is whatever going to happen? Another common question or prayer is this. God, why now? Why is this happening? Why am I going through this? Or even this common one, what's next? What's next, God? What else is going to happen to me? Sometimes I think our lives are very much like this story, and sometimes we feel like we're in that crisis point just waiting for God to show up. 
And I think a question for you today is if, if God were to show up in the form of a hero or whatever it is to answer the questions in your life, what do you need right now? What is it that you would hope to have happen? See, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we're now in chapter 9, and the, the series we're going through, we're calling it Unstoppable. It's unstoppable because we find that at every point in the history of the church, when it looked like things were pretty grim, and when things were not going well, that God showed up at just the right moment and changed and altered the course, the direction. We're looking at a, today we're looking at a person named Saul, who also goes by the name of Paul. And we see that Saul, that God showed up in his life at just the right time. Last week, we saw the first story about him, the first big story about him. And he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, ultimately leading to their death. That's what he was doing. That sounds like a crisis point in the church. Would you agree? This is a point when the Christians were afraid when they heard he was on, the way, on his way. And next thing you know, that at just the right time, God showed up and transformed his life. And then Paul, from that point on, lives a life of purpose that was part of this unstoppable nature of the church. I believe that God wants to do that with each one of our lives. I believe God wants to do that in our church. That he wants to show up in a way that at just the right time transforms and changes us. Many of us have already experienced that transformation. But then just as Paul leaned in and learned his purpose, I believe that God has a purpose for you and for me. And that God wants to use you for a, a, a particular reason that you're uniquely made for. And so today what we want to do is we're going to look at this next story in the life of Paul. And we're going to ask this. This question is what we want to address. How do we discover what that purpose is? How do we learn what God's purpose for us is? Because would you agree, wouldn't it be nice just to know exactly what God wanted for you? I, I think that would be great. And so the question that we often have is, God, I want to live with purpose, but what is it? What have you called me to? So we're going to look at three ideas from the story today. So let's look at ch Acts chapter 9 and start off in verse 19. You ready? And if you do like to take notes and you have a life journal, we'd love for you to follow along and and write, notes, uh, write those thoughts, and if you process as a life group or whatever, use that. So verse 19, chapter 9. Now, for several days, he, and this is, is talking about Saul. Saul was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And he came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus, that this Jesus is the Christ. Okay, imagine the story now. Saul was persecuting, killing Christians. He's on his way to your town. He's coming to Damascus. He's coming to Encinitas, and he's going to show up, and, it, and we hear, oh, here's one who's destroying the church or working hard to do that. He's going to be here today. What's the thoughts and emotions in your mind? And, but along the way, he meets, and he has an encounter with Jesus, and the next thing you know, the one who you're expecting to come and to persecute is preaching, and look what he's preaching. He's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's confounding everyone. He's 
beating them in their own arguments. He's pointing to the scriptures and demonstrating that, no, 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 I was wrong. Jesus really is the one. Paul seemed to really understand his purpose. He understood what he was set out to do, what God wanted from him. But in this, I want to show you a few things. Here's the first thing when we're trying to find our purpose that we find in Paul. This is important for us to remember. One, we want to be shaped, be shaped by your past, but not shackled to it. Be shaped by your past, but not shackled to it. See, Paul was shaped by his past. He actually grew up, he was a, a student, a disciple of a rabbi called Gamaliel, who was well-versed in scripture. He understood the Old Testament well. He was very zealous for his faith. That was part of his story. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. This is Paul writing about his former life. He says this. You have heard of my former previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God showed up, when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, Paul was shaped by his past. He had all the training that now was being used in his new purpose, his new calling. He didn't throw all that away, but he wasn't shackled by his past. And what I mean by that is that didn't define and confine him to a former way of life. He didn't say, oh, but I was the one who persecuted the church, so I, should, I don't really have a place. I better not say anything. See, because we're all shaped by our past. Some of you are here. You're shaped by a past. And, and one of the things I love about Seacoast is the amount of uh, recovery groups that we host here on campus. And I know many of you have gone through recovery. You have a past that's filled with addiction. Some of us have just things in our past. Some of you here, you, you have a past. And I'm not just saying we all have a past, but, you know, some of you, you'd say, like, I have a past. You know what I'm saying? Some of you, you know exactly who you are. Don't raise your hand. That shapes you, but it doesn't shackle you. That doesn't define you anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. I love that in our recovery groups, I've been able to talk with several. In fact, it was fun about a year and a half ago being able to baptize someone who uh, had uh, got involved in addiction kind of later in life and transformed by Jesus, and now he's leading one of the recovery groups. See, his past shaped him, but it didn't shackle him. He's not confined to it. We're being shaped in many ways. Some of you have a history in your marriage of unfaithfulness, but you worked through the, you did the hard work you found reconciliation and you're still together. That is a past that shapes your marriage, but it doesn't shackle you to the past. You have a new future, and it's amazing to see the ministry that some of you have as you see how God has worked through you. Some of your past might be, you might say, well, I don't have a bad past. Some of you were born in the church nursery, and you were in Sunday school the next week. By age five, you were teaching it. I know that, that some of you, that is your story. And you say, Ryan, but my past is boring. You know what? That's not a boring past. You actually have an amazing past. Your past is God allowed you and blessed you enough to be born into a family who loved you and introduced you to Jesus at a young age. And I hope part of that story is you had a church family and people that you enjoyed being with who encouraged you in your faith. That's part of your past. That's part of what 
is making you who you are, but that you're not just defined by that. God has a purpose that he wants to use for you. But everything we go through shapes us. You know, young people, I've, I got to tell you, I am glad I'm not growing up when you're growing up. This is hard. This is a hard time to grow up. It really is. Our young adults, our students, man. In fact, I'm grateful for many reasons. One, I'm glad that my friends did not have a camera on their phone with them at all times and that they couldn't post that for the universe to see. In fact, if they did that, let me just tell you, most of your parents and my peers, we wouldn't have our jobs if that existed when we were kids. You're growing up in a hard time. Even just what you're going through in this last year with your schools, sports, activities, things being changed and canceled. It's a hard time. But I want to tell you something. This is going to shape you. But don't let it shackle you. Don't let it confine you or define you to this moment. Let it be a part of God's story of what he is shaping you for. I have no idea what that's going to mean in your lives. But God's preparing you for something. So the first thing we see when we're trying to find our purpose is we're shaped by our past, but don't be shackled by it. Jesus now defines you, not your past. Okay, let's look at the next section. Acts chapter 9, now we're in verse 23. It says, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. They want to get rid of Saul, but their plot became known to him. And they were also, also closely watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him at night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. This is, I, I love this story. So Saul is preaching. It's gaining popularity. Many people are frustrated with his message. They're saying, wait, the more he teaches, the more people are becoming Christians. It's affecting our very way of life. And it says they went to put him to death. Notice the irony in that. That's exactly what Paul was do- or Saul was doing to others. But they let him at night down through an opening in the wall through a basket, and they lowered him down. See, these ancient cities were walled cities, and there would be houses that were built into the walls. In fact, this is the third of the biblical stories where someone escapes through a basket in the wall. You would think at this point they'd be like, hey, watch all the walls. Make sure we see no baskets. Like by now, you'd think. It's, we know this happens. So he's lowered down through a basket uh, out to the outside city walls, and he escapes. Now, this is not the actual timeline, though. It makes it feel like it just happens the first day he becomes a Christian. Next day, he's preaching. Third day, he's basket in the wall. He's out. But I want to fill in the gaps here. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul explains a little bit more. See, Luke says, after many days, but how many days? Look what Paul says. Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. He said, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus, and after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. So what we actually have is Paul became a Christian. He starts teaching and preaching in Damascus. It says that he went to Arabia, which, by the way, was basically directly connected to Damascus in the uh, time of Christ. What they called Arabia was essentially, think of it as a modern country of Jordan, if you know geography, if you don't know geography, just smile and nod. None of this matters then. So, but he went from uh, Damascus, which is in Syria, just north of Israel. And then Arabia was that whole area. It was actually called the Nabatean Nubat- N- Kingdom. 
if you've seen uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the third one, the Lost Last Crusade, they're in Petra at the end of it, or in the beginning, of, or the big temple there. That's actually the Nabatean kingdom. That was one of their um, main cities. So that's directly located, and Paul was hanging out and preaching to all the people there, according to him. Now, so we, some about three years, but now go to, I'll have it for you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, we fill in the rest of the details. Verse 32. Paul says, in Damascus, the governor under King Eridus, King Eridus was the king over Arabia, the, Neb- the Nabatean kingdom. King Eridus had a city of the Damascans garden, guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So what we have now is actually the story of Paul's converted. He's preaching. And in a period of three years, we don't know really what's going on, but we can assume he's growing in his knowledge of Jesus. He's growing in his ability and his uh, purpose as he's teaching and in some ways probably learning from other Christians, though not the apostles. And in a period of three years, now he escapes and he's heading down to Jerusalem. Pick it up in verse 26, now in Acts 9. Back to our story. That was our little fill in the blanks. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried repeatedly to associate with the disciples, and yet they were all afraid of him as they did not believe that he was a disciple. What a bummer. Can you imagine that? You became a Christian. You've been learning and growing in your faith for three years. You've been preaching. You've repented of your ways. You used to persecute, and you show up in Jerusalem. This is the headquarters. This is where all the, like, most popular Christian, this is where the apostles live. He goes to the apostles, to the disciples, and he wants to get to know them, and they would not see him. They were afraid of him, which is probably for good reason, right? The last time they saw him, he stood over while they watched Stephen get killed for his faith. So Paul shows up, and they're thinking, I, don't, I know that guy. We're not too sure about him. This is a tough, you know, sometimes when you read about Saul or Paul throughout scriptures, we think, oh, his, he became a Christian, he was on fire, everything went well. We get the highlights. He understood his purpose. But look, that took time. There's a lot of obstacles and opposition he felt. The next thing that I want to tell you, the first thing for us, understanding our purpose is, is don't be shaped by, or be shaped by your past, not shackled to it. The second thing is this. Be patient in the process of discovering what God wants for you. Be patient. See, it didn't happen overnight. Paul had this slow process of learning and growing in obedience. He even faced opposition from those who were against him and those who should have been for him. Do you know how difficult that must have been? How much perseverance that would have taken? How hard would it be to say, here, I'm, I'm a Christian now, and have the Christians say, uh, I don't know. Like, think of who is someone who would be unlikely for you to see. If they showed up here today, would you go like, mm, what are they doing here? Sometimes we have those high-profile, we were talking as a teaching team, talking about the high-profile conversions, and it's like, you know, Kanye becomes a Christian, and everyone's like, mm, is he really, though? Is he really? And then he has a song about Chick-fil-A, and everyone's like, okay, yeah, he is. So, But who is it who would show up that you would say, 
uh, I'm not sure I believe they're a Christian. I'm not sure God could do anything in their life. Who is that? If someone came right now and sat right here and worshiped with us, would you be the most surprised at? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend from school. Maybe it's a, a governor. I'm not going to say which state. Who is it? And would we as a church welcome them in? Or would we just say, eh, I don't know. See, Paul was actually rejected by the very people who are supposed to be accepting him. There's opposition. You will face opposition in a life of Christ. You will. You're going to face opposition from those who, of course, don't yet believe, but you might even face opposition from those who do. And one of the beautiful things and the power of Jesus is that we can find unity even through that. But we've got to be patient in the process. In fact, I'd say this year has been a good test in that, in church leadership. It's been a good test for all of us in all of our industries. But, you know, in the church, it's been a year where there's been plenty of division. There's been times this year where God's had to remind me to be patient in the process. I even sometimes I'll get caught up and looking around at, at, at my friends and their churches and going like, why does everything seem to be going perfectly at your church? Why? What are you guys doing? What, do, what are we missing? Sometimes it's so easy to think that everyone else has it better, right? I'm sure no one in your church has, ever, has any dis- differences of opinion this year. Why in mine? And God keeps reminding, be patient in the process. Don't forget why I've called you. Stay the course. And of course, as I talk and hang out with my friends from other churches, we just encourage one another and find we're all in the same boat. And the biggest reminder is be patient, continue to love, continue to lean in. There's a, a f- and now it's kind of a classic book by a guy named Eugene Peterson called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. You know, sometimes in our Christian faith, we want our obedience, we want our faith just to be quick, supercharged. If you're like me, I want to do everything fast. I just want, come on, let's, results today, move forward, let's get it done. But this book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction is talking about our faith isn't like that. Our faith isn't all about those great moments of, of those high points, but it is a long obedience in the same direction, a life that is slowly just following God faithfully. In fact, Eugene Peterson says this about Christian discipleship. He says it's a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less attention to our own. Finding meaning of our lives, get this, we're finding meaning of our lives not by probing our moods and our motives motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes. Make a map of the faithfulness of God. Don't chart the rise and fall of your enthusiasms. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. So let's make a map of God's faithfulness. Let's be patient in the process, but don't chart a course of, oh, all the high points. Know that it's long obedience in the same direction. We see that through Paul. Okay, final section. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. He says this. So Paul has just been rejected. The apostles will not welcome him in. And then this is a great verse, verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and he'd talked to him. And and how Paul now is Saul's spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. 
And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. And they were attempting to put him to death. Now get this. Here's the story. Paul's being rejected even by the apostles. These are the people who should have known better. And then all of a sudden says, but Barnabas. Barnabas. We were introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. In fact, we're told his real name. His real name is Joseph. So Barnabas is his nickname. If you're looking for a good nickname, how about Barnabas? Huh? I'm Barnabas. Barney. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement meant that this guy is the epitome of an encourager. This is the type of person you want. In fact, we find a few more stories. We're going to look at his life in a couple weeks. That's an amazing nickname. Could you imagine if you were called the encourager? Maybe some of you are. The encourager. Here comes the encourager. When Paul is being rejected by the superstars of the faith, the encourager shows up and takes him in. This leads to the last point that I have in finding our purpose is this. Surround yourselves with the encouragers. If you want a life of faith and understand purpose, you want to surround yourself with encouragers. Find those people who can walk with you, who can take you in, who can remind you of truth when you kind of get off the rails. Barnabas is going to do that in Paul's life. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 11, Barnabas and Paul are going to basically plant a church in a city called Antioch, and it's going to explode and and go well because those two are together. Barnabas, Barney, the encourager. We have other nicknames in Scripture. One, James and John, Jesus gave them a nickname. Their nickname was Sons of Thunder. Basically, Sons of Thunder, Jesus was saying, like, you two guys, you're like like a thunderstorm. Everywhere you go, it's just like everything's intense, and, and it's loud, and you're not afraid. You're bold. You're just like Sons of Thunder. Barnabas is the encourager. Surround yourselves with encouragers, the people who can share faith with you. Think back. Who are the encouragers in your own life? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent, a sibling, a friend. Why we are so committed to life groups here? Because we believe that we need encouragers in our lives. We need people who can walk with you, pray with you, remind you of truth. I love getting those little text messages or whatever from friends, people in our own group who will just, those little notes of encouragement. In fact, I have, when I first started ministry, my mentor gave me, he said, keep a file. And back then it was all written down. Everything's email now. But it was keep a file of all the encouraging stories or things if someone gives you a note. Keep a file of that. So I did. He also said keep a file of all the bad notes, too. Um, he, he called it the perspective. So some days you just need perspective. You start thinking too highly of yourself. And I was, in, I was a junior high pastor at the time, so there was plenty of bad notes. But mostly from the church janitor. But... Uh, <laughs> But I love that idea of keep a, keep a file of the encouraging things. Surround yourself with encouragers. When you want to find your purpose, there are days you're not going to want to keep walking with Jesus. There are days you're going to say, it would be so much easier to just give in, be a jerk, live my life for me, and not try to live the ways of Jesus. Many days that will feel easier. I don't think it's better. 
I don't think it's for the good of our community or for your family or for you. But we need those people in our lives who will keep us on course to encourage us along the way. So surround yourself with those encouragers. Let's look at how the story ends. And it says this. Now, now people were attempting to put Saul to death, and now the brothers learned of it. So Saul is now a part of the family in Jerusalem. And they brought him to Caesarea. They sent him away to Tarsus. Okay, that's not always the best way to encourage someone like, hey, let's just send you away. But they went, uh, sent him to his hometown. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace. As it was being built up, it continued in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It kept increasing. Notice this, how it ends. Paul, Saul is finding his purpose. The church is finding their purpose. And the church continued in the fear of the Lord and with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Let me invite our worship team to make their way back up as we come to the end here. I was really thinking about what does a church look like that continues and grows in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as I thought about that, I thought, what does it really mean to fear God? And once again, I want to point us to this book, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Eugene Peterson says this. I want you to hear it. Fear God. Reverence might be a better word. Awe, even. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What the Bible is interested in is the response we have to him. Will we let God be as he is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous? Or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small minds? Insist on confining him with the boundaries we are comfortable with. Refuse to think of him other than the images that are convenient to our lifestyle. But then we're not dealing with the God of creation and the Christ of the, cro- the Christ of the cross, but with a dime store reproduction of something made in our image, usually for our own benefit. See, when we're talking about f- they continued in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, when the early church was watching the unstoppable nature of the Spirit, Their eyes were open to how vast he was, how big he was, how majestic, how God was able to take Saul, who killed Christians, and make him into a proclaimer of Christ. And they were filled with awe. Brothers and sisters, our dream for this church has always been, but even more than ever in the year ahead, is that we're a church who moves forward with awe, fear of the Lord, and comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we move forward in awe because we believe that he is able to keep this unstoppable story going today, that he is able to work among you and me and to transform our lives so that we can be a blessing to the communities in which we live, work, and play. We believe that our God is able to transform lives and to surprise us with who might be sitting here sometime this year. And so I want to give you a challenge. You're going to hear about this more, but I want to give you a challenge. Let's be a church where every one of us are praying for at least one person that does not yet know Jesus. And let's pray diligently for that one person. And you know what I think will happen? If we had, uh, let's just say right now we have 500 people at Seacoast. If we all are praying for that one person, what if only 20% received the Lord this year? 
Yeah, some of you, uh, some of you, you know, you know the math right away, right? Your common core, you're drawing your boxes. No, just kidding. Wow, if only 20%, if God only answered 20% of our prayers in one year, that's 100 people. Do you know what would fill us with awe? When we see the Holy Spirit transforming and changing lives, do we believe that God is able to do that? Yes, I do too. Amen? Amen. What if we do that? What if we move forward with believing that God's going to do something amazing in San Diego County in the next year? And we move forward with awe as we stand and say, in awe of this God, say, you are majestic and glorious and so much bigger than what I could imagine. And we're going to trust you to be you. And I believe we're going to discover our purpose in that. How he wants to use you. So as we end our time here, I, I give you that challenge. That's why in your life journals, we ask you every week to write down the name of someone. So we want to challenge you with that. Now I want to challenge you with one more thing as we end our time with communion. And if you need a, if you did not receive an element, we have some people with baskets coming around. If we can just put your hand up, we'll make sure you get one. You know, when we come to communion, we, this is our time as a church to remember Christ. We take the bread and we want to start with the bread. We have one up here too, Tim. We start with the bread. This represents the, the body of Christ. It's the life that he lived, the death that he died, and his resurrection. So when we remember the life of Christ, I want you to remember that he showed us the way. He lived the way among us. And what he accomplished on the cross takes care of all of your past, all of your sins. And he gives you new life. So we're going to take this bread and we're going to remember what Christ has done, the life he lived, the death he died, and his, the resurrection, confirming he is God. This is the one in whom our lives are built upon. Let's take the bread and remember Jesus. And now as we take the cup, when Jesus took the cup on the night, he instituted the, this idea of communion. During the Passover meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents a covenant. It's a promise I make in my blood. And really what he was saying that what's about to happen on a cross is a promise that I'm making that cannot be broken. The forgiveness I will give to you, you cannot undo. It's my promise. And when God makes a promise, you can't break that. You can't undo what he has done. So we take the, the cup and we remember that all of our past is taken care of in Christ. And all of your doubts, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of that is finished in Christ. Don't be shackled by that past. Because in Jesus, it is finished. So let's take the, the juice together to remember his promise. You know, I want to invite you, if you're able to stand with us, Let's stand as we close our time, or pray and then sing one final song. God, we thank you so much for the promise that you gave to us that your life would be enough. And I thank you, Lord, for each one of us that you've rescued from a past. And each one of us who maybe have a past where you've been present the whole time, we thank you for that, God. And we pray now that you would remind us 
of who you are in our lives. Remind us that you are enough. And God, as we respond with this song, it's our proclamation to you. It's our reminder to one another that you are the one in whom we build our lives upon. So we thank you and give you this time.